0: And welcome to Are We There Yet? Market Scales online video podcast series that explores the most exciting cutting edge projects, technologies, companies, and individuals in transportation and mobility today. My name is Grant Harrell. And as your host, I'll speak with the voices of today's most exciting companies, learning truly what's at the cutting edge of transportation technology today. And today I am especially excited to learn about the Perlin project and very excited to learn about the programs, technologies, partners uh, that are all a part of this incredible project. I had the opportunity to meet with the chief executive officer of the project a few weeks ago at EAA Air Ventures uh, 2022 in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And uh, since meeting, I've been really excited to continue the conversation within the podcast series. So really excited to learn more about that project today. To provide the audience with a little bit of background on the project, the Perlin project is truly an internationally celebrated world record setting climate and aerospace research project. It's truly expanding the boundaries of aviation and atmospheric research, exploring the stratosphere, really to the very edges of space in a zero emissions research plane with no engine. You heard me right. Uh, That's a zero emissions research plane that's achieving these world record flights and some incredible applications and really just uh, enlightening the world with some research and data uh, that's never been seen before. It's an all-volunteer organization. The project really depends upon the contribution of donors and corporate sponsors to make all of this Possible, And what they're doing is that they've built a research glider that flies to the edge of space and into the ozone hole. Um, Within the research, they study how stratospheric mountain waves in the polar vortex influence weather and impact high altitude flight safety, for example. So really excited to get into some of the milestones and learning more about the project uh, through the chief executive officer today. The chief executive officer is a gentleman, Ed Warnock, who's dedicated now over 12 years to the Perlin project, He's a partner with Cumulus Research uh, that's involved in strategic planning, strategy planning, managing change, for example, is also an instructor with the University of Oregon, a faculty member with Williamette University, has served as a development uh, director uh, for projects with the Ministry of Education in South Sudan. So really excited to speak with him today and to learn more about this incredible project. So, Ed, hello, and welcome to Are We There Yet?
1: Hello, Grant. Nice to be with you.
0: Well, thank you so much. Well, I'm really excited to continue our conversation that we started a few weeks ago. Uh, Ed and I, as I shared, we're both out at Oshkosh, really the premier aviation event of the year. And Ed and his Airbus team uh, were there uh, at Oshkosh and really enjoyed the opportunity to get to meet with Ed and learn a little bit more about the project. And so um, if you don't mind, Ed, I'd I'd love to just jump right into the, the are we there yet question. I I really love uh, posing an are we there yet question uh, with guests and I'm really excited Uh, to learn more uh, about your project and to pose uh, the the question today. So a little bit of background, you know, to my question. Um, Your project has really achieved some some incredible awards and uh, recognition over the past few years. And just highlighting that a little bit for audience members, this includes things, uh, for example, 2017, Guinness Book of World Records for the highest in glider flight. You've achieved a 2019 Guinness Book of World Records for aviation, numerous awards through, for example, Society of Experimental Test Pilots, Society of Test Engineers, Royal Aeronautical Society uh, to name just a few. And so that I understand, however, that the project is, is is far from complete. You're continuing to advance, you're continuing really to push the envelope of possibilities. And as I understand as well, the record setting days uh, are, are not over. I understand that you now have your sights for achieving 90,000 feet in an aircraft. And so fitting within the theme of the RV there yet series, Ed, if I may, a world record, breaking 90,000 feet flight in a manned wingboard aircraft. Are we there yet?
1: We're not there yet, but uh, we are planning on making the attempt uh, about a year from now. Okay. We'll take the uh, Airbus Perlin 2 to South America. We go to the very tip of South America, where, where it narrows down. And from our flight altitude, you can see, uh, you'd be capable of seeing both the Pacific and the Atlantic at the same time. And uh, we rely on special conditions. We're we're a glider. We have no engine, no propulsion at all. And we rely on special conditions that only exist in a few places around the globe and only exist uh, a few days out of the year. So we'll be down looking for stratospheric waves, that extend to the top of the
0: atmosphere. Wow, you mentioned only a few places on Earth and 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 only a few days uh, where where you're achieving those types of conditions. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the the upcoming flight and, and and the venue where that flight uh, will be based out of, and 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 a couple of the areas within the world where achieving something like this is is possible. I just I find that especially fascinating. Okay.
1: Well, let me start with the last part of your question first. Yeah. But we first learned about these stratospheric waves when our founder, Einar Ennevoldsen, who was a fighter pilot and NASA test pilot, he was doing some work in Germany for the DLR, the German uh, Aeronautical and Space Authority. And he was walking down the hall, and he saw a picture uh, posted on the wall of something at very high altitudes that had undulations in it. It looked, looked like wave motion. And that is unexpected in the stratosphere. We called the stratosphere the stratosphere uh, because we, we thought that once you get up to the stratosphere, all vertical motion is uh, below you. And with the occasional thunderstorm that pokes his head up into the stratosphere, we thought, nope, if you can get to the stratosphere, all the bumps are below you. Everything is flat stratus. Well, it turns out that uh, these pictures that Einar saw were LiDAR pictures up over Sweden. And uh, he asked the scientist who had posted them, What are they? And the scientist said that they were stratospheric mountain waves. And Einar said, I'm familiar with mountain waves. What are stratospheric mountain waves? And he said, well, under the right condition, when the polar vortex interacts with mountain waves down in the troposphere, they will propagate up through the tropopause into the stratosphere and then to the top sometimes of the whole atmosphere. They've been registered over 100,000 feet high. In fact, the biggest waves on the planet are not in the ocean. They're in the stratosphere. So we first saw them in the early 90s uh, over Scandinavia. And it started a lifelong quest by Anar to say, I would like to go soar of those. He did some calculations and said with a properly designed glider, you could fly these waves. These waves are strong enough they could lift a glider up to these altitudes. So uh, he started uh, planning. And uh, he linked up first with Steve Fawcett and Steve Fawcett and he went uh, and took uh, one of Steve's gliders and, and outfitted it for pressure suits because they were planning on flying uh, up close to the Armstrong line, the, the line at which the pressure is so low that at body temperature, uh, the blood inside of our bodies would begin to boil and uh, so they borrowed pressure suits from NASA and they began to search around the world for how to reach these stratospheric waves. They went to New Zealand for five years and uh, the waves were above them, but they couldn't break through a layer between the troposphere and the stratosphere. There's a layer where the waves dampen out and they could get up to maybe 30,000 feet and just above them would be these incredible waves, but they couldn't quite poke through. So they moved from New Zealand to where we now fly, which is in Southern Argentina. And they went to a town called El Calafate. And it is, it is a beautiful location. If, if I had to retire someplace besides my present location, I would think El Calafate, Argentina. It's near beautiful glaciers, wonderful mountains, and the mountains create the mountain waves and then they, they're far enough south that they get the southern polar vortex. And you have to have these high speed winds of the polar vortex to push the waves up to higher altitudes. So they flew there for a couple of years and finally they broke through the tropopause and they set a new world record for gliders at about 51,000 feet. But the important thing was they proved that you could reach these waves in a glider. And once they had gotten up to about 51,000 feet, the pressure suits were expanding. It was cold. And they said, well, we've set a world record. We've proved that we can get here. Let's go for hot coffee and plan how to take advantage of these waves. They came back down, and the Perlin 2 glider was the topic of discussion at that point. How do we build a pressurized glider where we don't have to wear pressure suits?
0: Okay, okay, wow. What an incredible origin to, to the story and, and just how groundbreaking to to have, have found uh, the location uh, where, where you can find those waves and, and those conditions. And you've, you've continued to advance that project and take it to the next level and have achieved the 76,000 uh, and moving on now towards 90,000. So, so that's amazing. Uh, you, you mentioned that being the, the location for, for the upcoming flight. Are, are there other areas in the world where you can achieve similar conditions or is it, is it truly just limited to that one area in, in terms of the perfect conditions for, for this type of flight?
1: Uh no backup over Scandinavia is uh-huh. a possibility. Okay. but the the evaluation of flying in Scandinavia is the waves occur a little further north and they occur, of course, in the winter. Okay. And the further north you go towards the Arctic Circle, the shorter the days are, the colder the conditions are on the ground. and that makes it difficult for flying. Uh, we have to have enough daylight. We don't want to fly in the in the dark. We can. The pilots are instrument rated. The aircraft is is equipped and rated. But we would we would prefer to fly in the daytime. Uh, so the north is 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 a possibility. New Zealand is a possibility. We have a new tow plane that tows us through the tropopause now into the stratosphere. And with that tow plane, New Zealand would become a possible place where we could go back. And say these flights might be possible in New Zealand. But you need you need mountains and you need the polar vortex above them. So it's up near the two poles. Uh, so New Zealand, South America, Scandinavia, possibly someplace over Alaska, maybe someplace over the Ural Mountains in Russia. So there's a couple of candidate locations, but the the spot in South America uh, seems to be probably of all of them seems to be the best site.
0: Very good. Very good. Very good. That's 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 incredible, and and a great place to retire, nonetheless, as well. So very good, very good. Um, talking a little bit about about the science and and the innovation, it's it's very fascinating uh, to me, and, and and for audience members that aren't uh, so familiar with the, the project, as as you've touched on a little bit, that the project is really exploring the the largest waves on on the planet, as you shared, and um, and these are these the stratospheric uh, waves, as as you shared with us, and they're energized by this polar uh, vortex you're sharing with us and, and and as I understand these waves really play a, a primary role in, in creating the ozone hole and so I, I'd love uh, if you don't mind to learn a little bit more about why exploration of these waves is important and kind of some of the the applications of of the project and and really at the end of the day what what we're learning and how maybe we apply this to uh, to, to areas uh, that are important
1: the waves have uh, two interests. Uh, for us. One is uh, global weather. The waves mix the stratosphere in ways that uh, the global weather models need to account for. Uh, Meteorologists have become aware that, no, the stratosphere isn't flat, that things actually move up and down. And our flights are helping to measure those. Uh, You mentioned the ozone hole. The uh, the waves that that we ride also create a type type of cloud called a nacreous cloud, or in Scandinavia they're called a perlum cloud. Uh, from whence we got the name for our project. And Perlin means pearl or mother of pearl. And these clouds glow with with blues and greens. They they they're pearlescent and beautiful in the sky. And what's interesting about these clouds is they're not made up primarily of water moisture. They're made up of nitrogen compounds, including compounds of nitric acid. The nitric acid in these clouds interacts with the CFCs that uh, we've released into the atmosphere. And uh, the CFCs and the nitric acid combine in a catalytic process to release free chlorine. And the free chlorine then catalyzes O3, which is ozone, back into O2, which is the oxygen that we have. But it creates a a region where ozone is depleted, and we call it the ozone hole. Now, that's interesting to flight safety, which is the other area that we're interested in in exploring these waves. The ozone hole allows more particles from space, radiation from space to enter the atmosphere and get down where airplanes fly. There have been some examples of where electronics on high-flying aircraft, airliners in polar regions have had uh, unexplained anomalies in their electronics, uh, uncommanded autopilot movements. And there there is a suspicion that this is simply caused by too much interference. Uh, particles hitting the circuit boards, uh, particles hitting the processors, radiation affecting the circuitry. So part of what we're studying is, is how much radiation is there in these areas? We are carrying uh, instruments that measure what scientists call space weather. It's all the stuff coming in from, from outer space. The other thing about flight safety is these powerful waves, our glider weighs a ton with when it's when it's flying. And these waves are powerful enough to lift a ton up to the edge of space. Well, the waves are a field. They go up and down and up and down and up and down. Picture a rock in a river with water flowing over it, downstream of the rock, you get a field where the where the undulations continue. Now imagine a high-speed airplane entering that field at the wrong angle. Well, as you would fly into the up part, all of a sudden everybody would say, whoa, you know, the plane's gone up. Then you would fly into the down part and people would call it an air pocket or something. They would say all of a sudden the bottom fell out. I've got a picture on my computer of an airliner with a food cart that's been thrown around and then later passengers are being taken off on stretchers. And the suspicion is they were flying in a mountainous area the suspicion is they didn't hit turbulence they hit waves and they simply hit it and they and they got thrown up and down and up and down imagine driving down a dirt road and you hit some washboards well you know you can you can wind up having a terrible ride you know it'll break your car it'll dr- knock your fillings out and but if you just look at it it they just looks like nice little undulations on the road but the the wrong angle, it can be dangerous. So we're involved in in mapping those. We're, We're exploring different ways to see the waves. Now the waves are a clear air phenomenon, but we use computer projections and the pilots can see the waves in the cockpit and they can say, okay, right here, the air is going down. I need to move over here where it's going up. Now we use it to ride the waves, but the same Computer generated images can be used by airline pilots and military pilots to avoid the waves yeah. if they have to. Yeah. Or maybe they could use them too. If you're climbing out of Denver and it turns out if you could move over half a mile and get in rising air, mm-hmm. it's free energy.
0: Sure, sure. Very good. That's that's fascinating. A lot of applications, and um, I, I wasn't as familiar uh, as much with some of the the flight safely applications. That's uh, that's really interesting to to learn about. Um, can you tell me, as as, as you've shared with me uh, with, within meeting, that that really the project and and the success that you've achieved to date is is really a reflection of the contributions of, of so many individuals and and organizations that that are all a part of this project, and the, and the project really depends upon uh, that that level of support, and so. I know, for example, that you've got some incredible partners within the project, organizations like, like Airbus, of course, um, United Technologies, BRS, uh, Aerospace, Weather Extreme, uh, Garmin, uh, a few that I'm familiar with. Um, would you tell us a little bit more uh, about the importance of partnerships within the project? And if you don't mind, maybe a, a couple of examples of some of the, the partners uh, that, that you collaborate with.
1: Okay. Uh, when uh, Steve and Anar decided to build a a pressurized glider. Originally, it was going to be Steve's project, and Steve was going to fund it. But Steve, unfortunately, passed away. Uh, he had an untimely death, and ANAR was left without uh, without a major sponsor. And so it was determined that the best, best path forward might be to create a not-for-profit. Uh, when you answer the question, well, why would anybody want to help build a glider, that is is going to go to the edge of space. Uh, the commercializations of the things that we are discovering are, are a step or two away. So it wasn't something we could sell saying, invest in this uh, uh, and you know, it will turn it into a profit-making venture. So we framed it as this is a scientific research and educational and innovation incubator. And uh, so we we incorporated as a not for profit, a 501c3. Everything that we discover, we put into the public domain, uh, and uh, share it with scientists and companies around the world. So with that, it started off that the donors mostly came from the glider community. So it was it was a case of glider pilots thought. You're going to fly a glider higher than the U-2. You're going to fly a glider higher than the SR-71. And in started coming donations of $25, $50. Morgan Sandercock, a glider pilot out of Australia, put in hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we were off and running that. We were able to hire a designer. And then Dennis Tito, uh, he was the first person to pay his way to the space station. Uh, He he did orbital or orbital mechanics uh, on Venus before he he got into space flight and in investment. Well, Dennis was a glider pilot, and he said, "I want to go back to near the edge of space. I'm wanting to fund you." Uh, and then corporations came, and some corporations donate equipment. You know, they, instead of us having to purchase it, they'll give us the equipment and put their logo on the airplane, or we put their logo on the trailer. And then uh, Airbus was kind enough to adopt us, and they became our named sponsor. So the airplane now says Airbus on the nose because Airbus has provided the bulk of the of the funding. But we we still are reliant on those twenty five dollar donations, those corporate donations. Uh, it it uh, You know, to this quote, it takes a village, it takes the whole aviation community (laughs) to fund a project like ours. You mentioned something uh, that I could mention, uh, the Talus Company, which holds satellite communications for ships and airplanes. Uh, They have donated a satellite communication system that we've put on our Egret tow plane, and we're going to put it on the Perlin glider. And that'll be used for real-time communication. And one of the primary things is, we'll be able to share scientific data real-time with the researchers around the world. And the meteorologists can send us updates to these wave models that we use to determine where should we go to find the lift. So we'll, we'll have a much more efficient airplane. They are also working on an artificial intelligence system, that will help us plot the optimal path through the waves. Uh, We're a glider, we don't have a generator. So all of our power is battery operated. Uh, we're, We're above the space where we can breathe the outside air. We have to breathe bottled oxygen. And so our flights are limited in time. So it's always a rush against the clock to say, can we find in this wave system, can we find just the right place to get up a little bit here and then move over here and get up a little bit further? And Talus is, is applying artificial intelligence. Now, the spinoff of that is what could we do if other aircraft began to say, I can see weather not only the horizontal winds, but I can begin to see any vertical winds. And I can use them when I can, avoid them when I should. So, you know, this this is a partnership for us that that we're very excited about. Very and much Airbus it is to provide us with with fabulous support at all levels. Uh, we are we're we're we are excited to be a small part of the Airbus family.
0: Yes, yes, very much so. Well, th- those are some incredible partners, and, and I think, as you said, it takes a village. I think that the entire aviation community is very much behind you. I know that, uh, that, that really the, the the Perlin Project, I think one of the most exciting uh, projects that that I was fortunate enough uh, to learn about uh, at Oshkosh, and, and that very much is very, very much uh, the the entire aviation community, and so I, I know that uh, the entire community is very much behind uh, behind the project. Uh, you, you mentioned some of the the individuals that are involved uh, that were involved in, in the early stages uh, of the project, and how some of those individuals and companies were attracted to the project. Uh, would you mind sharing with us how how you were originally attracted to the, the Perlin project?
1: Well, I, I was a, a bush pilot in Africa for a while. Uh, I was a pilot and, an, and a mechanic. Uh, if you're going to fly a plane in Africa, in South Sudan, you need to, you need to be both a pilot and a mechanic. Uh, <laughs> sure. There was no shop available, so we did all our own work. But, so I, I, I loved aviation. I'd wanted to be a pilot since, since I was, was just a small child. And when I came back from Africa, I took up uh, soaring. Uh, I enjoyed tremendously flying airplanes in Africa. I, I enjoyed looking at the wildlife and, and uh, exploring that, that wonderful con- continent. And for some reason, just uh, flying an airplane from here to there uh, wasn't as exciting. And I thought, well, let's take the engine out. Maybe that'll make it a sport, that'll make it fun. So I began to be a glider pilot. And in the glider magazine, I read about Anar's project. And at, at the bottom of the article, it said, if you're interested in volunteering, uh, contact Anar. And I, I stumbled over myself getting to the computer to send him an email because I thought, wow, he's going to get hundreds and hundreds of glider pilots. And uh, out of those who said they would like to volunteer, I was fortunate to uh, find a place on the team.
0: Wow. Wow, that's incredible. And, and, and how, how long ago was, was that now that, that you became involved in, in the project and went from bush pilot to, uh, to working with the Perlin project?
1: It was the fall of 2009 was when I, I first met with I had a cup of coffee with him at the Portland International Airport, and uh, we, we talked about flying. I went with a friend of mine from the Glider Club who was a data scientist at Intel, uh, David Miller and John and I met with Anar and and before the cup of coffee was drained, we we were true believers. We said we've got to do this. This has got to be the most exciting idea we'd heard in a long time. Take a engineless airplane to the edge of space.
0: It's it's amazing today, 2022. It continues to be, I think, one of the most exciting projects, uh, not only in aviation but but really in in the world. It's it's incredible work um, that that you and the team are doing. And 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 speaking to that, um, you know, the, the project really has has taken you around the world uh, and back. And I know that that especially the last few years have been a very uh, busy time uh, for you and for the project. And, and as I understand as well, the, going back over the last few years, you, you've seen very few summers, as I understand, and you've been traveling a lot from winter to winter at the various locations through the project. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about you know the experience over the last few years and traveling the world from winter to winter, uh, and and I would even love if you didn't mind within that to maybe maybe share a story of a especially exciting day uh, working around the world within the project.
1: Well, the ninety percent of the team are from the northern hemisphere, and uh, during our winter, we we prepare the the purlin aircraft. We get all of our equipment together, and then we ship it down. Uh, in springtime, and we follow it. Just about the time summer is breaking in Europe and in the United States, uh, we get on planes and we fly to where it's winter again. We go down to South America and uh, spend the winter uh, exploring these fascinating waves. And just about the time springtime is coming to Argentina, the flowers are beginning to bloom Uh we get back on the airplane and we go to where it's fall and the leaves are falling off already, and winter comes again. So, uh, for the last number of years, we've seen more winters than summers.
0: Wow. I can imagine that you've just had some amazing experiences could you you, you maybe just tell us about uh, a day any day I think any day within the Perlin project and within your travels around the world uh, is probably a story in and of itself but when you look back at you know some of the fun that you've had within the project over the past few years uh, is there maybe a day that you would mind telling us a little bit about or what what you might have been working on that day
1: sure uh, one of, one that stands out in my memory is we we had a period when we were in southern Argentina, and there weren't going to be any waves. So we decided we would go to Torres del Paine in Chile. It's absolutely pristine, beautiful, sharp mountain peaks, rugged. And uh, in the winter, of course, the tourists aren't there. So we've got, we've got uh, uh, Torres del Paine just to ourselves. And we went down there as a team and and had one of the most uh, wonderful days looking at incredible vistas and enjoying the mountains of Argentina and Chile. So the, the, the privileges of doing something like that is the pay that we get for volunteering. The other pay that we get is being able to hang out with some of the most interesting people in aviation. The uh, pilots and engineers and volunteers that we have are are world class. And they're people that uh, many of us would would not have gotten together in one group. And to be able to meet with people like Jim Payne, our chief pilot, who holds uh, a dozen or more world records in aviation, uh, you know, that's incredible. Miguel Intermendi, he's, he's a Spaniard. Uh, living in Florida now, but but he was initiated into living legends of aviation in Europe. And Miguel is just an incredible person. Uh, Tim Gardner, I mentioned uh, Morgan Sandercock, his wife, Sandra, who is Argentine. Th- these are people that, that are lifelong friends that we would have never met. So that's the pay, Not only having an adventure, but having it with fabulously interesting
0: people. Absolutely, I think that's, that's the best pay, uh, the, the best form of payment. That, that's really incredible to hear about and, and what a day it sounds like uh, it, it was um, within the project. Um, I, I know that something else that, that's really important to the entire project, and I would imagine to you um, especially, is, is education. And I, and I know that that's a, a very important initiative within uh, the o- overall project. Um, I know that you you have a few organizations that you partner uh, with within some of these initiatives, organizations like Teachers in Space, for example, um, the Desert Research Institute, the Museum of Flight uh, that I'm very much familiar with. And, and I can imagine that as an educator yourself, uh, these, these initiatives are extremely important Um, Would you mind telling us a little bit more about why education is such an important part of the the Perlin project and and important to you as well?
1: Education is a chance to pass on to the next generation. And Perlin Perlin has taken that on as as one of our major missions, is we don't want to just uh, set aviation records and uh, hang a picture on the wall, shaking hands with somebody important and saying, look what I did. What we want to do is we want to inspire young people to look for careers in aviation, look for careers in aerospace, look for careers in science, look for careers in meteorology. We also want to inspire people that you don't have to have a billion-dollar budget. You don't have to be NASA. That if you didn't get selected as an astronaut, your your days of adventure are now not over forever. That. We want to be we want to be an example of what people who have a dream and are dedicated can accomplish uh, without a huge amount of money. The amount of money that we have spent on this project is is a rounding error on most aerospace projects. now, partially because of our generous donors who give us the equipment, et cetera, et cetera. but uh, that's part of the educational inspiration is to let kids get inspired. We we let them build things like CubeSats and we carry them in in the glider. So teachers in space uh, train the classrooms, the students build the CubeSats, we carry them, and the students can then follow us on our virtual cockpit, which tracks the flight on a moving map and shows our altitudes and shows the temperatures and shows how much oxygen is left. And the students can, can say, this is a historic flight and my experiment is flying with the airplane. And we think that that'll just nudge some students into, uh, well, the way I say it to myself is we were inspired by Ainar Ennevoldsen. The next Ainar Ennevoldsen is, is uh, 12 years old someplace, and that uh, needs just a nudge so that they, they think bigger, They uh, are more adventuresome. They want to explore. Yeah.
0: That's incredible. I, I know that you you really are are, are nudging uh, many many students throughout the world in in the right direction, and uh, it, very inspiring to me. Uh, and I know all of the children and individuals, and really I think anyone that hears about the project, it's such an incredible uh, project and such a, a source of inspiration. So we we all appreciate what you're doing and the education initiative, and, and most importantly, uh, what you're doing to to motivate uh, the, the the future of the world, which is is the children today. So. So uh, we we certainly thank you for those uh, initiatives and and for how important that is within the project. And I know, um, speaking to that, uh, that uh, there will be a lot of viewers out there of today's uh, podcast interview, individuals, organizations uh, that are learning about the project for the first time today and uh, we'll be excited to learn more about how to support uh, your project and and how to become a part of of the incredible team and individuals and organizations that you have already. So if you wouldn't mind, would you mind uh, sharing that with viewers out there how they can learn more about the project and getting involved?
1: The easiest way is go to perlinproject.org and you can see pictures, you can meet the team, you can see what we're doing. And uh, on almost every page, there's a way to connect. We we say, click here if you'd like to become involved. Click here if you'd like to donate equipment and make this possible. Click here if you'd like to become a sponsor or a donor. So perlinproject.org is the shortest path between most people and the Perlin Project.
0: Very good. Very good. Well, audience members, you you heard that. Please do visit the website. Please do click the link, send an email. Ed did it uh, 12, 13 years ago, Uh, read an article, click the button, sent an email. And uh, you've heard of the incredible journey that he's had already um, within his involvement in the project. So very much uh, encourage you to do the same. And uh, Ed, it's it's really been been a pleasure. It's been an honor to, to have the opportunity to speak with you today. I really appreciate sincerely you taking the time uh, to talk and to share some of your insights and in this incredible story with the world. So thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it.
1: Grant, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you, Ed. Well, best of luck uh, to you and the Perlin Project. And uh, that concludes today's episode. And uh, please do visit the website and learn more about how you can become a part of this incredible project. Thank you.